So this morning, um, I want to carry on, as I said last time when I preached, it's kind of an inception. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Inception, um, where it's a dream within a dream. Well, this message series has just been one of those most amazing experiences for me as a Christian. Um, I had this word at the beginning of the year from God, more, and the abundant life that he wants to, from the John 10, 10 passage, that he wants not just life for us, but life to the full. He wants for us to experience more in our Christian walks. And one of our first messages that we had in that series was at the end of this year, and it was the breaking, that for any capacity for us to increase in, there needs to be a breaking And it's not comfortable, it's not nice, but God is wanting to expand. And I really felt that last year for many was a breaking. It wasn't comfortable, but God is wanting to increase. There is purpose in the breaking because he's redesigning, he's reshaping you for something more. And as John uh, so wonderfully said this morning, identity has just been such a key um, just across churches. I'm hearing churches in Pittsburgh talking about identity. This church is doing series just on identity. And so God is really wanting to um, redefine because I believe that there's a strong story, a strong message that the world is trying to portray upon us who we are. And God is really just pushing back the truth in who we are. So we looked at identity before, and even my last message, um, which was about, um, we had looked at your flow, and then it was about the position of your worth. Again, identity, abiding in God. And you know that passage, you know, a lamp unto your feet. God has really been a lamp unto my feet through these series because I kind of thought, well, we'll do these kind of messages and then we'll move on to another message series that I've kind of got in the wings going on. And as I've been going through this, he just lit up this whole positioning, this whole identity message that um, has just really lifed me. It's brought me so much joy. It's brought me so much hope. And I believe that I don't know how long we're going to spend within this series. Um, But I believe that it's really important, as we said before, how you see God is how you see yourself. Amen. How you see God will determine your destiny. It will determine your future. So our viewpoint of God is really, really, really important. And I believe it's the same with Jesus. Many of us will testify if I ask you, who do you see Jesus as? And we'll say, he's my savior. He's my healer. You know, he's the redeemer. He's grace. He's mercy. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And all of them are fantastic, wonderful messages. But one thing that I think for me personally, that I kind of neglected maybe in my life is that Jesus was a rabbi foremost, a teacher. Out of the 90 times plus that people would refer to Jesus, they would come to him and say, Rabbi, up to 60 times. So out of those 90 times that they would respond to him, they would call him out of those 90. 60 times of those, he would call them teacher. And so I believe that we've kind of lost some of that element to our Christianity. And we're going to be unpacking in this series. So what I want to do in this message is an overview of where we're going. So we're going to give a quick kind of uh, high view of what we're going to kind of be getting into. And really it's kind of discipleship 101, but with a reframing, I believe. Because discipleship for me 
um, I don't know if I had a healthy viewpoint of what discipleship meant for me. Maybe you have, but so we're looking at apprenticeship to Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Mark? If you've got it on your phones, open that up. So really no one has excuses for not bringing their Bible to church anymore because all of us have our Bibles on our phones. So turn with me to Mark 1 and we're looking at verse 16. That's Mark 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark, verse 16, if you're all there. So here it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brothers Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Then he had gone a little further, and he went to his James, saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets, and without delay he called, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat, which is always an interesting image, and with the hired men, they followed him. Jump over to chapter 2 and verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13 of Mark. Once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the text collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And the Levi got, uh, Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. When the Pharisees, uh, when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jump over to chapter 3. 13 and 15, Jesus went up into the hills and called him, to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, but they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Hold on to that part. They might be with him and they might send him out to preach and have the authority to drive out demons. And last passage, if you jump over to Mark 8. Verse 34 and 37, it says, Then he called to the crowd, to him along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul. For what can man give in exchange for his soul? So within those passages, we see uh, Jesus, there's a key theme throughout all those passages, the word follow. Often disciples were known as followers, or another word that's used um, for disciples, which in the Greek is Matthias. Can you say Matthias? And so this word, it means disciple, it means follower, but a better description which uh, kind of theologians uh, agree with and which really kind of opened up my eyes to being a disciple of Jesus is apprentice, an apprentice 
to something. And so we know kind of one apprentices. I think, Luke, you're doing uh, electronic, electrical apprenticeship. Not anymore? No? Not right now, but you're going to. You've done an apprenticeship, you're going one. And so the role of an apprentice is to learn the trade and then do the trade, right? And so it helps me frame discipleship better because often I think we've had this message in the Christian church of be a disciple, believe, and that's it. Like, just believe into these things. Believe and know the things of God. But if Luke, when he's trained to be an apprentice, I know he's done, uh, he done, was it car mechanics, stuff like that? Diesel mechanics. And then electrical. If, if he just believed that he could do those and didn't use them, then what was the point of the apprenticeship? And so we're going from this place of understanding to knowing. And so I want to just before we kind of get into this, kind of frame up what it was to be an apprenticeship, uh, a follower in those times. And so within the Jewish tradition, there was these, uh, so from the age um, kind of zero up to age of 12, they were schooled in something called the Beit Sefer, the house of the book, it was called. It was basically grade school. And what they would do is that they would memorize the, the Torah. So that was the first five books of the Bible, so probably about that much. They would have memorized. And so this is a very oral culture. So don't feel bad because my memory is terrible. So the thought of memorizing the first five books by the age of 12 is a terrible thought. So that was what they were taught to do. Through that, they would learn all kind of maths, you know, their culture. But they would have that memorized. They would then, so at the age of 12, as we know, they would become men. They would go into the workplace with their father. Um, women would actually start uh, boring children. So we think we, we're bad at the moment with women's rights. Well, women have come a lot further than that. So women were having children at 12 and 13 years old, being married off, and that's in, you know, the Jewish tradition. So guys would, would go off into their, uh, their work of their father, but if you were really special, if you were someone that really grasped the law, if you really understood the, the meanings of what God was, you would go into something called a Beit Talmud. It's the best of the best. And so you would go into this kind of house of learning. It was off to the side of the synagogues. And they would memorize the whole of what the known Old Testament is. From 12 to 15 years old, they would have this understanding, this knowledge of the Old Testament. And so then at 15, if you were really, really special, you would then go uh, to apprentice under a rabbi, and you would be called a, a talamadim. A talamadim would be someone at the age of 15, so you'd come to whichever rabbi that you loved, whichever one that you followed, you would be grilled by your rabbi. He would grill you with questions about, you know, what you thought about the Genesis passage, you know, all these kind of random facts, and that he would want you to see if you were up to what was expected. And so if you were accepted, you had this just amazing experience of 24-7 with the rabbi. 24-7. It wasn't like Monday to Friday school. It was 24-7. You lived and breathed with your rabbi. And actually, there was this blessing that they would speak over the, the people. Um, it would be, may the dust of your rabbi be on you. So you'd travel from town to town. Each rabbi would have their own uh, specific set of teachings, their yoke. 
And so what it was to be with an apprentice, as an apprentice is to be with him, and what it was during that time, you would, um, you would literally walk with them every kind of single day, every single waking moment. And interestingly enough, this was like a really amazing thing. So when we see the passages in Mark, when we saw, you know, Simon, when we saw James and John of Zebedee leave their father in a moment, this was kind of like the Harvard school, right? This wasn't just like, um, you know, just some little man coming along saying, hey, you've got nothing else better to do. You're a fisherman. Come follow me. This was like the most honorable thing that it could have. And actually something that we lose in trans, uh, translation, um, we think, you know, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men, they're fishermen. Like we think, oh, it's Jesus kind of being kind of funny, making a joke. You're fishermen. I'm going to make you fishermen of men. That phrase was actually like, you want to be a fisherman of men was actually you're a rock star rabbi. You were someone that changed people's minds. You were someone that would reshape and rethink everyone's mindset. So it's actually just this incredible thing. That's why they left their dad in the boat in that moment. Hey, a rabbi is saying that we can apprentice with him. And so they would leave everything to go and follow him. So be with him, as we saw in the passage of John, sorry, Mark uh, 13, 15. It was to be with him. The second thing is that you would become like your rabbi. In Luke 6.40, it says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So we have this message in our culture, you're a snowflake, you're individual, you're you. Well, this message was not there. You weren't to become yourself. You were to become your rabbi. You would sound like him. You would have his intonations like him, like his pronunciations, his wording. Everything about him, you would become. You would copy every single aspect of being with him 24-7. And so after a period of time, then you, after many years or whenever the rabbi thought it was time, you would then go and do, you would apprentice what he had done. So you would go out, as Jesus said, I've trained you to preach and drive out demons. Like, I want you to do what I do. So we have this kind of, this is what it is to follow Jesus. In the, in the uh, as some of you know, in the New Testament, the word Christian is only mentioned three times. And really it was more of like a racial slur, like calling you a little Christian. It was something that was a negative connotation used by outsiders. And so we have this culture within the Western society of being a Christian and being a follower. The two different types and just the kind of more semantics than anything else. But the difference between we as Christians in the Western society, you can just believe in Jesus. Well, they didn't have that in their culture. You couldn't just believe in something. You had to be with, you had to be like, and you had to do what the message was. That was that whole kind of sphere. But in the Western society, we have more, well, I'll just believe in Jesus. And God, you follow me. God, I need help. Can you help me in this situation? God, you're kind of like the genie God that we can kind of have. Whenever we're in trouble, we come to him. And yes, he does help us. But there is so much more that I believe if we're going to truly live in the more life, in the abundant life, as the life that is from life to full of life, you know, Jesus' teachings, to apprentice under Jesus, to actually have Jesus as our rabbi, that would be a revolutionary thing. There was um, a Gallup did a, a, te, uh, uh, a survey of Christians in America and 76% of Americans ticked the box of being Christian. 
Now, if 76% of this nation was actually Christian, do you think we would be in the same state that we're in? You would hope not. So they did another survey. They did what it meant to follow Jesus. So read your Bible, pray, have you know, morality, kind of these healthy principles. And I don't know quite all the, the things they did to survey, but lots of private organizations have run this test and they've come up with the same figure. And they found that across America, there's 8% who actually disciple, who are actually followers of Jesus. Now, I think that's why we're heading the way we are as a nation. I don't think this message is a condemnation, but it is something that God's wanting to awaken each and every one of you to something that is more, an apprenticeship to Jesus, not just merely believing in something, not just feeling good, but actually apprenticing under the world changer that is Jesus Christ. So how do we live as a Christian, as a disciple, as a Matthias, as someone that follows God in the 21st century, because we've got all this stuff that's going on. And so my first point today is to be with Jesus. The number one priority as a church, and we believe this as a church, and it's experiential church that we believe. You know, as we worship, we allow space, we allow for prophetic words, we believe that God speaks with us because he's here with us. We are with Jesus, Jesus is with us. And so I spoke before about the, con uh, the concept of abiding in him, abiding in the word as we are the branches and he is the life, the vine. And so we cannot do anything without him, but we like are attached to him. So an apple cannot produce be produced. It doesn't produce its own life. It comes through the very vine. It's the same with wine. When you're drinking your wine at night, you know, whenever you're having, whatever you're having, the grapes that are produced through the, from the vine. And so we have this, this life that is flowing through us. We're abiding in the Spirit. There's a theologian, Dallas Willard, that has this amazing verse here. It says, the first and most basic thing that we can do is to keep God before our minds. This is funda a fundamental secret of caring for our souls. This is the most important concept. And I just want to pause there with that. If you just go to the next slide, Rach. I think that's on there. There it is, yeah. So the first and most basic thing that we can do and must do is to keep God before our minds. This fundamental is the secret of caring for our souls. Our part thus, practicing the presence of God, is direct and redirect our minds constantly to him in the early time of our practicing. We may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on these things less than God. But there are habits they are habits, not law of gravity, that can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones that have taken the intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle to, as of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, we will become the pole star of our inward beings. This wonderful just phrasing of what it is to be with Jesus. Now we accept that in our walks 
there are things in life and things that have to be done. And so a lot of us beat ourselves up when we're not, I haven't been with God today, or I haven't been with God in this moment, or, you know, things have been overwhelming. God, I'm sorry. I'm always coming with this heart that's just sorry all the time for not being with God. And that's not the case. When we look at the Psalms, when we look at the Lord's Prayer, we always see David coming with a thankful heart into God's presence, into his kingdom. There is never condemnation. And so I love that he says this, that no matter what happens, as we develop a practice of keeping God in the front of our minds, as we begin to practice, hey, you forget it for a moment. Hey, you lose it there, but you bring yourself back like a compass to the north that you just keep on re-compassing yourself to the north. That's where the flow begins to happen. That's where practice is really important. And we're going to get to that in a second about the importance of practice. But if we're not starting with the very desire, the very fundamental of him being with you, you're going to get everything else wrong within your discipleship to Jesus. Because this is the fundamental. He loves to be with you. Newsflash. He likes you. He loves you. And he's waiting for you. And he's always watching throughout your day. You know, even as my children play, I love to watch them. And they come over and, you know, we'll interact and then they'll go and do their thing. I'm ever not present within them. But they can interact with me. And that's what it's like as Christians. We go through this journey. We're not very good at it at the beginning. We're constantly wavering, wavering, wavering. We beat ourselves up for a while. But God's just staying there, ever present. And as we learn to be with him always, we learn to direct our minds upon Jesus. The very first and basic thing, we must keep God in our minds. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be holier than thou in the world. You must, I must have my quiet time now. You know, it's an ebb and flow that we enjoy within God, where we just flick and think about the goodness of our Father. So when I'm working through my day, okay, I work in the church setting, but that's actually probably more dangerous because I think I'm doing things that are actually with God, right? I can think, well, I'm doing good things, but actually I'm missing the interaction between me and God. Maybe you're in your workspace. Maybe it just looks like you just reflecting on God's goodness. Not just praying about, God help me in this stressful situation. This person has said this. This email makes no sense what they've just said. This is a crazy situation. I I can't handle my work right now. But actually keeping him before you in your mind. The second one, become like Jesus. There's a good definition for this. Dallas Willard has this. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated as John Chapman said before, by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with him as our teacher. So as we are with him, we are becoming like him as we allow the permeation of who God is rest upon us. To be with him is to then become like him. But there is a thing that's happening in this world. If you can go to the next slide. I don't know if any of you have caught the Super Bowl on Sunday. I think this kid became more famous than Justin Timberlake did. So Justin Timberlake, for those of you who didn't see the halftime show, it was clean, it was good, he did a good job, it wasn't political, it was fun, so good job to Justin. So he went up into the crowds and he found, um, and so when he was going through, this kid ran down and um, 
I don't know how many of you have seen this in culture, but it's really interesting. So when the the kid wanted to sing with him, he was so busy on his phone to try and get the video first and then to get a selfie of Justin. So you've got this mega superstar. I know that we're not meant to elevate people, but this is the world. So we've got this superstar. This is Justin Timberlake we're talking about. And this guy is so busy about getting his phone out to get a selfie that he completely misses the person that's right next to him. This is the culture that we live in. And you look how many phones are around in that moment. That everyone's trying to capture a moment that actually they could experience themselves and be with that person. Do you think that, and he's known as Selfie Kid now. He's been on the Ellen Show. He's been at all these things. And he's got these 15 minutes of fame for being a Selfie Kid. He's a really nice kid, but this is the stigma that he's got on Twitter. We just slam the world. But it's just so interesting that we try and experience something through media. Media is a really, really powerful tool within our world. And so for some of you who maybe are of an older generation and say, well, I don't have phones. I don't use any of this kind of stuff. That's not me. I have news for you. If you go to the next slide. We are all being spiritually formed. From the day you were born, you were spiritually formed. When you wake up in the morning, there are three things that happen to you on a daily momentary basis. There are stories which we believe. They come through uh, the news forum, the books we read, the stories of family, the origin of family. So you have a story. Your family has told you a story. You have parents that have modeled you a story of what it is to be a parent. America has modeled you a story of what you believe. Because when I came over here, it blew me away how different our cultures are. Yet we're so close, yet so different. And so there's a story that's being told over and over again. With that story, we build habits. Those habits, as psychologists are proving over and over again, define who you are. Your actions actually can shape your minds. They can actually change the way you think. They can change the type of person that you are. Habits are incredibly powerful. And we're going to be going through some of this stuff later in the journey. And obviously, as we know, relationships are incredibly powerful to who you are developing to be. We always say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. We dress like our friends. We think like our friends. You know, we've got all that, that kind of thing. We have a oneness because we are a relationship-orientated beings. No matter how introverted or extroverted you think you are, you require company to live, to survive. It's part of our survival relationship. And so it's all within this environment that we are shaping these things. Unintentional spiritual formation, because Christians, spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. You are not a stagnant person. You are placid. You are moving. You are being shaped all the time. So spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. And so we have high control within that area. The low control, obviously, is over time we have experiences that occur to us. And that reinforces, reshapes the way we think. If you go to the next slide. So we have intentional spiritual formation. This is obviously under the banner of what it is to be like Jesus. And so we believe as a church, it's not enough just for you to hear something on a Sunday. It's not enough for you to hear a good proverb, to hear hear good wisdom, to have God impact you on a Sunday. The teaching is not 
alone what needs to happen. So we believe in the teaching. We believe that the truth is reshaping the story of what you're being told. So really, us um, as, as communicators, we are constantly having to reshape your story to the truth because experiences, whether you like it or not, trump the truth a lot of time in the Bible. A lot of time of what the Word says can seem contradictory or we see through the lenses of our experiences and which shapes the truth that we see. That's why we have so many splits, so many divisions within denominations of the, the Christian church because everyone has a different cultural experience and so they see the Bible differently. Your story helps you see the Word as opposed to the Word shaping your environment. So teaching. Next one is practices. This is obviously in place of habits. What practices are you implementing within your walk that is outweighing the habits that you have in your life? This is always the battle that we face within our Christian walk. Are your habits winning or are your practices? And I mean, obviously reading your Bible, praying, um, silence and solitude, that aspect we're going to go into as well. Like, are you looking after your soul? Are you implementing what this says on a daily basis? Are you bringing that life into your world? So our practices, and obviously community, relationships. You cannot do this walk alone. That's why Jesus didn't have a disciple. He had disciples. He had a community of people that they would do life together. You need one another to do this walk together. You can't do this alone. That's why we believe in connect groups. We believe that not Sunday is enough and we believe you're all really amazing people and you've got great wisdom. We had a great men's meeting yesterday morning and some of the younger guys gathering together and it was amazing listening to the wisdom in the room. I mean, there was so much life in that moment. It was incredible. And what I could do is live just on that moment, which is not what God wants to do. He wants to see us live in every day through our beings. And so we need one another. And so often it means that you have to get out of your boat, out of your comfort zone, and actually connect with one another, create space for community to occur so that we can live out these practices. And obviously, the Holy Spirit is the center of all of this, the Spirit of God. Because we know that Jesus is not with us physically. He's by the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning at that position. And he sent his spirit to dwell with us. And so we have that ever-present help, the Holy Spirit, the person, the helper that transforms and shapes all of our practices. Because how many of you know that our Christian life is not just these amazing one moments that happen in our walk? that actually the Holy Spirit is actually transforming you on a daily basis, even though you don't know it. And so what happens is um, within ministries, so you have this amazing encounter with God. You're like, God, you're amazing. You've just radically transformed me. No, he was doing a work constantly, and you suddenly awoke to that very moment. You awoke to that breaking that suddenly occurred and you're like, God is just this amazing person. He transforms in a second. He does, but he's been doing this mundane, daily, daily shaping of your heart, of your mind, 
of these aspects. So the Holy Spirit is such a massive part for our intentional spiritual formation. So our teaching, the words that are being spoken over us, the practices that you are instilling into your life and the community of people that you are doing your apprenticeship with. And so obviously that's high control. But obviously there are things in life that we can't control through the hard knocks of life. We experience shaping. Have you ever, obviously all of you know this, the butterfly, when it comes from a larva into a cocoon, you know it actually breaks down every single bone structure in the larva to create into a butterfly. It's not something like it was inside of the larva. It actually breaks down the whole being to transform into that butterfly. And even when it's a butterfly, it needs to break out of its cocoon, which is a mind-blowing thing. There was this, um, this guy who observed a butterfly and he, he saw it struggling. He saw the butterfly struggling and so he helped it out of the, the, the cocoon and, um, and put it down on the ground and he discovered that the butterfly could not fly because through the process of it breaking out with its wings, it actually pushes all the blood all the way to the end of its wings for it to strengthen. And so often in the hard knocks of life, we try and skip the process of the hard knocks, the faithful to the end, the shaping that's happening. Because if we're honest, we're a medicated society. I would rather have no pain in my life than experience the pain and shaping. Because we live in an instant culture, right? FedEx, Amazon, you know, all these things. My kids can watch whatever they want, when they want. I have no idea what that's going to do to them as they're older. I mean, I had to, in England, we had it even worse. We only had four TV channels. Four terrestrial TV channels. And they didn't even operate all the time. They would cut off at a certain hour. In the afternoon as a kid, I had to watch. I didn't watch it, but you kind of wait for your next program. And you had to watch this blank screen of this like child with a, a crazy crown, a clown. It was a really weird image. And looking back, you're like, why was that there? But you're like, so you just watch it and wait for your program to kick in. So now my kids have Netflix, you know, Amazon, Hulu, all these things. I want to watch this show, this show, this show. And they're constantly switching shows because they can't even be bothered to watch all the show. Like, yeah, this is boring now. And so we can live that way within Christianity. How many of you have lived this way? Jesus, Lord, we rebuke the devil. We rebuke what Satan's doing in my life. Take this pain away from me. And God's like, I need this pain for you because it's about to transform you into something greater. Often we actually equate to what we think the devil's doing. Actually, God's shaping and molding you because the school of hard knocks is actually part of your apprenticeship to Jesus. We look at the passage, and I believe it's in James. In 1 James, and we know it well. Let's see if I can find it. Rejoice. Yeah, yeah, see, this is my problem. I've got so much of, I can't remember all these things. So consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your father develops perseverance. Perseverance must be finished in its works so that you may mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So we have the story of hard knocks. So we need community. Community creates exposure and encouragement. So when you are facing trials, 
things get exposed. That's why we need vulnerability within our communities. But as I say, we're going to go through all of this. And my third point here is do what Jesus did. Over time, as we practice, as we spend time with Jesus, as we become like him through our practice, through the intentional shaping of God in our lives, we get to do what he did. And just a quick list of what he did. We have preaching, teaching a whole new way to be human, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people who are far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, prophesying, silence and solitude, and standing against the religious system. This is what we get to do. And so we're going to go through all three of these kind of things because the Christian walk is not a sprint, it's a marathon. But oftentimes we treat the marathon or the training for the marathon because the end goal we agree as a marathon runner is to finish the marathon strong, to finish, get across the finishing line. But as Christians, I feel like we, we celebrate the practices. So training for the marathon, we kind of live in the training aspect. So we kind of tisk, tick a box of training. So I, I've, I've done my training today. I've ticked my, tick my box. It's really hard to say. I've ticked my box. And, um, and we can kind of equate it to our practices, right? So when we pray or when we read our Bible, we tick our box and we say, I've done my practice for today. So what? You've done your practice. That means nothing. Because what is your end goal? What is it where you're wanting to get? That's the vision. You don't do it whether you feel like it or not. Often I hear people say, well, you should read your Bible when you feel like it. You're not going to do anything. You are inherently within your flesh fighting against that. So you have to do your practices every day. But don't see it as a goal to tick off and say, I've done it. Because the marathon race, becoming more Christ-like, is the goal that we live, right? And so if we have that vision that I may not feel like it, but I know that this is shaping me to be Christ-like. I know that as I read this, as I spend time, as I shut out the noise of this world, as I spend time with my rabbi, my teacher, my father, as I spend time with him, as he shapes me, then I get to do what he does then I get to run my marathon race well. It doesn't matter about the day-to-day. -day. It's important, as in it's important for you to do the things, but don't let it stop at just what you're doing daily. I know many of you are reading your Bible through the year. We've started off strong. We're reading through Genesis and things like that. You know, We're getting into these practices, but don't let the practice be the end goal. Let the practice lead you to a deeper encounter of who God is. Trying to decide if I should finish. I want to finish just with one point here. Because some of you may think, and I know this is happening in our worlds, we are becoming, and this is an argument that atheists kind of bring towards us. They say, um, you know, we're morally sound in this country now. We have morality. Yeah, we kind of laugh at what morality is, but we have morality. We have, we're, we're good to one another. Why do we even need to live this? I believe in God. I turn up on Sunday. Why do I need to do this, this kind of activities? It's, it, you know, we can get, it's religious. We can think it's religious. I don't have to be governed by rules and regulations of what I must do. And I think Jesus in the parable, um, not parable, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and just on a side note, wouldn't it be funny if he had the sermon in a house? 
It was just, it was a sermon on a mountain. Could have been a sermon in a bar. It could have been a sermon out on the streets, but it was a sermon on a mountain. That was just something that was quite funny to me. But as a quick, and I know we're over time, I just want to quickly run through this. But the Sermon on the Mount is the most powerful expression of what God was talking about in the practices. And um, he opens up in the chapter 5, he has this kind of opening of blessed are the, the weak, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, and you know, blessed are the broken. And before, because those theirs is the kingdom. Now, before within the culture, it was you had to follow the Ten Commandments, the 613 additional um, uh, uh, laws, and then obviously all the Phariseeism laws, which kind of equated to another thousand, I think, on top of that. And so that was you living close to the kingdom. But Jesus actually opens up and says, hey, it's not about that. It's about you who are poor, broken. It's about, remember, he came not for the righteous, but he came for the the, the sick and the poor. He came for those people. And so he opens up the kingdom to everybody. But actually, then he raises the bar because, as you know, it says that if you have heard it, it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And he goes on about looking on lustfully towards women. He talks about divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, a complete transformation of what it is to be human. And if we just go to the next slide, because often I think we feel like an iceberg. So the iceberg is, hey, I don't kill people. Hey, I don't cheat on my wife. Hey, I do good things. But God, in this this moment, he pierces the very soul of what a human is and says, you may have that right, but underneath is an iceberg bigger than you even realize. And so we have this spiritual formation is why it's important. And so often we know about um, atonement, about the, the sanctification process, we call it. Well, spiritual formation is a modern version of sanctification because we need to upend that iceberg. And so Jesus is basically just undoing the people. When you say that you think you live right, you think that you're the iceberg and you're all living in the righteous way. But actually, underneath, I know your heart. And he knows that we need these practices. You may think that you have a moral life, but actually there is so much more in our walks that we need to transform, that we need to change. And I love how he starts the sermon in 519. It says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom. So he leads in with that. And then he finishes in Matthew 7, And verse 24, and it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Mic drop, Jesus walks off the scene. There was no encouraging word of, hey, you can do it, guys. He just left it at that moment. You either follow these words, you either follow the practices and you will be like a house built on a rock. Or if you don't follow these words, if you carry to live your life as you think you should live, you will be like a house on the sand.
And so my challenge over these next weeks, we're going to be doing, uh, the th- looking at the three parts, what it is to be with Jesus, what it is to be like Jesus, what it is to do what Jesus did. And I know for many of you who've lived a long Christian walk, this is 101, this is discipleship, but there are stories being told. It's funny, we were praying about what to kind of decide for the covenant kids, what they, the stuff that they need to know, and it's been getting them back to basics getting back to just understanding prayer, tools which will enable them to live life to the full. And often it's in the basic, it's in the practical that we live. It's in the simple day-to-day Monday, not the flashy messages, but to understand that, hey, when you get angry with someone, that's just as bad as killing somebody. That's a high bar to live, right? How many of you have had that moment when you're driving, someone cuts you off? Or when you don't get what you want and you're cut in that moment. And so I believe that for us to live the abundant life, he's calling us to more. But it's not more of what we do. It's through the spirit that encourages us. It's through his strength as we abide. As I say, that's why you cannot do this without first being with him. We need to learn what it is to be with Jesus. And then everything else flows out of that action. We stand this morning. Thank you for listening.